for September 3rd, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 218. Lego my et in Arcadia ego. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather. With me is Peter Fenzel. Hello. How are you, Pete? <laughs> I'm doing awesome. I'm doing great. Whatever day this is, is awesome. It's a wonderful day. I'm loving it. <laughs> I, uh, so, it, you know, summer. It's summer, Pete, when, when a man's thoughts turn to uh, pedantry. Oh, of course, definitely, yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Uh, we we thought it might be fun to take uh, to take a day over the summer and do a kind of summer school with uh, with the Overthinking It podcast and sort of sort of dig in, you know. And, and as one of the early, uh, we were just talking about this the other day, weren't we? Or maybe it was on uh, the other podcast that I do. I know you don't listen to it, but uh, <laughs> it's only because I don't watch Gossip Girl, <laughs> not because I don't appreciate your insights. <laughs> uh, we were saying that the early uh, the early tagline for overthinking it was gaze into the navel long enough and the navel starts gazing into you yeah and, i'm pretty uh, glad to go with that one yeah but yeah <laughs> <laughs> and we we thought we'd, we'd we'd gaze into the navel uh over overthinking it and do a do a sort of behind the scenes episode because we you know we're often asked uh by ourselves <laughs> within the last 15 minutes uh we have often been asked um you know how, what what goes into really being an overthinker you know what i mean what are the the extreme and rigorous mental and physical disciplines that um uh, that one must take on in order to become an overthinker and pete i don't know if you'd agree with me but i would say one is the burden of correctness the burden of always being right that's certainly something that you have to like stare in the face and do battle within your soul right yeah. <laughs> so um, let's uh, you know let's ring the changes on this on this uh, particular theme, Pete. Who's been wrong? Question of the week: What is a <laughs> pop culture uh, correction that you'd like to make, especially one that does not improve uh, the source material, <laughs> even though you know in your heart and in your head, and according to the dictionary and Fowler's modern English usage and uh, the Chicago Manual of Style, you are right. Uh, what is so- who's someone you would like to correct? Now, you could argue with this if you'd like, and I bring it up for this very reason, but I really feel like... There's a bit of awkwardness that could be shored up uh, with uh, the men without hats. Uh-huh. So, so they tell you that you can dance if you want to. Uh-huh. Right? And the two – now, I don't know whether it's, a, it's an issue with ending a sentence with a preposition or just the sort of incomplete inconfi- infinitive. But it really feels like awkward dangling out there. So it should be more like, you know, we can dance if you would enjoy it. <laughs> right? Or if you might if, – if we could dance if you, would ch- if you might choose dancing. Uh-huh. Right, or you might choose this activity. Uh, the the repetition in the sentence, if, if you're going to have that kind of uh, book ending of the "if you want" phrase, it, ending it without a noun at the end, uh, it just seems it just seems grammatically just to hang out there in an awkward way. So so maybe the song should be more like you know, we could dance if you might consider dancing to be something that you would enjoy. Uh, we, well, no, it's you, it's you can dance if you want to. Isn't oh, you it? can dance. Oh, I, I, now I'm the one being corrected. No, uh, sorry. Well, <laughs> well, actually. Well, also they say we can leave your friends behind. And the question is what? Like, what are you leaving them behind? Uh-huh. Are you leaving them behind a house? Are you leaving them, I mean, behind in the sense of like, we can leave them behind and we can go somewhere, but dancing doesn't involve going anywhere. Uh-huh. Right. Like you can dance where you are, right. You can dance if you, if you want to dance. Uh, so, so we can mark that up. We can sort of cross that out, take our little red pen, right? And we could say, like, we, you, know, you can dance if you might choose dancing as an activity. We can leave your friends here where there will not be dancing uh, because uh, – um, Oh, no. It's we can dance if we want to. Oh, I, yeah, that's what I right, thought. Okay, sorry. No, well, I'm, so I'm, I'm wrong. So yes, I, went to okay. the, I went to the internet, the source of all well actually. But and- Eve, let's get focused. This is important. <laughs> we have to sort this out. We can dance – if dancing is something that you would enjoy, we can leave your friends here where there is not going to be dancing, just to clarify. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, because, you know, and then we could say, the reason that we would leave your friends here where there is not going to be dancing uh, is, is that um, – oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. It's uh, – oh, no, we can leave your friends here where there is not going to be dancing um, 
uh, because there's another uh, there's another sentence with a preposition, right? Like we can leave your friends behind behind what? Exactly. This is what I'm talking about. The whole sentence, the whole song is rife with all sort of imprecision. Right. Right. And it's just, it's, it's, and talk about safety dance. This is, you know, there's jagged edges on every line of text. It'll shred, it'll shred your (laughs) grammatical clothes to walk along these bladed spines. Uh, So, yes. Okay. We can dance if dancing is something you could enjoy. We can leave your friends here where there is not going to be dancing. The reason that we would do this is because your friends do not dance. Uh, and uh, if they don't dance, they're no friends of mine. They are not my friends. They are not my friends is probably a better way of putting it. Uh, so I think, I think that really sorts it out. It, makes, it really sets down the argument really clearly, expositorily, right? Uh-huh. Uh, I think that I'd be more compelled uh, to do the safety dance. <coughs> Excuse me, pardon me. Uh, if... It was said uh, clearly, and now, <laughs> now the men without hats like have reached out with a voodoo curse and are torturing my throat. Right. Going to grab a quick, quick drink of some diet soda. Right. So the um, we, uh, we can dance if we want to. We can leave your friends behind. I mean, there's a kind of conditional expressed uh, there, right? Like, uh, imagine, imagine how you would react differently to that lyric if it were we could dance if we want to, even even without correcting the uh, the. Uh, preposition at the end of the thing and i mean i don't know preposition at the end of the at the end of a sentence or at the end of a phrase is what is one of those one of those rules that like yeah it can become like ambiguous when you're dealing with sort of ambiguous modifiers and things like this but the you know you you know the famous retort to this one right like prepositions at the end of the sentence that is the sort of thing up with which i shall not put (laughs) um so the right we we could dance if we wanted to you know, yeah. so it's actually not it's not it doesn't go so far as being a statement that we are going to dance and we are going to leave your friends behind uh, right. because they don't dance. And no one and I can't be friends with anybody who who doesn't dance. You know, I've, see, like now I'm tapping my foot because now, <laughs> now you're speaking my language. Well, it's right. Like uh, is it declarative short declarative sentences are, are always, you know, preferable. Right. Like as Strunk and White said, prefer the Germanic word to the romance. You know? Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, we should also just cut every unnecessary word and just make it as efficient and straightforward as possible. I think it's in I, the, the like the foreword, like E.B. White maybe wrote the foreword uh, in addition to the chapter he wrote in that book about how um, Mr. Strunk, uh, w- Professor Strunk, I should say, would repeat things three times because he was so concise. Um, and so the, you know, the injunction to omit needless words in Strunk and White's element uh, to style, he, w- he would like lean across the podium and like, you know, bang his hand on the podium and say, omit needless words, omit needless words. <laughs> <laughs> omit needless words right, uh, right, right. you know and you can imagine I, I mean you could argue that six of those words were in fact needless and m- m- might well have been omitted without yeah. the suffering and just to bring everybody up to speed a little bit these are some of the sort of essential notions of prose and poetry and all styles of writing that come out of the 20th century right at least in english american english in particular just calling down making clear making declarative i mean it makes me think of that you know the ezra pa- the famous famous i think uh, draft in terms of general consumption of text that, that I've seen that sort of really hammered this idea home with me is the Ezra Pound revisions to the Wasteland by right. T.S. Eliot, right? Where they take the huge poem and you just and you just see all the crap that Eliot wrote and, and it's just all struck out and yeah. struck out and struck out by Pound and really just boiled down. Uh, and Pound, of course, tremendously important. Uh, in this style of writing, just like Hemingway is really important in this style of writing, sure. but it becomes uh, becomes almost a religion to people. They they appeal to this rule so fervently, and it does you know offer its rewards. You know, like not eating shellfish or what have you can help you with your health. Just because it's a religion that says that you shouldn't doesn't mean that it's wrong. But uh, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, so but, well, yeah. I mean, that's 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 interesting. But I mean, I think the thing I think uh, one point you're going you're kind of going towards is that like. It's not, you know, God didn't say to omit needless words. You know what I mean? Right, right, and right. And sometimes right. there can be a great deal of beauty or pleasure, right, in in the words that are needless. One of the rhetorical tropes that was taught in uh, medieval uh, oratory, medieval, you know, schools of, of rhetoric, of speech giving, to uh, largely, not really to politicians then, because there were no politics as we understand them, uh, but it, it, mostly to preachers who did right. the who did all the persuasive talking. Um 
what's called amplification. And it just basically meant how do you how do you make it longer? It's the you know what I mean. It's the undergraduate. <laughs> uh, it's the undergraduate virtue, right? I'm because such a I'm such a child because I giggled like a little boy at that one. How do you make it longer? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> if we had the answer to that one, we wouldn't be doing a free podcast. That's, that's for sure. For sure. <laughs> we'd we'd be yeah we'd be uh, selling those one old weird tip ads on the. Uh, <laughs> I love those. I've turned my yellow teeth white. That's great. It's awesome. Um, so, 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 yeah. Just by brushing with baking soda or something like that. I don't. I don't know. You know, we don't. We upgraded our. Uh, we upgraded our ad. Um, our uh, you know ad network, and so now we get like major brand like national advertising campaigns by and large on overthinking it, and we don't get. Um, we don't get one weird old tip from Google AdSense anymore. Also, yeah. we were kicked off Google AdSense because they accused us of click fraud, which we didn't do. Hey, is there anyone from Google listening to this podcast? Because I would really love uh, help navigating the Kafkaesque bureaucracy of the appeals process. Uh, email me at rather at overthinkingit.com. But they're, anyway. just pro- they're just probably mad at me because my like 6,000 word post about up that included like multiple breaks for verse quotes was broken up into like six pages <laughs> Because I thought it was unreadable as a single page of text. What? I still remember getting in arguments about Paradise that. Lost and Paradise Falls. No, yeah. there, there are aesthetic. There are aesthetic reasons. It's not just all a cynical reaching after page views to um, uh, to break an article up into to multiple pages. I mean, and you want to eliminate it when. Uh, when the, you want to uh, you want to omit needless page breaks, you know. Yeah. But I mean, not think, but yeah. not all page breaks are needless, uh, and you know not all words are needless. I guess it's your I guess it's your definition of needfulness that is uh, that is at issue, right? Yeah, I mean that's sort of like when when you just by way of metaphor, right? If someone says to you, comes up to you and asks you about like you know workout routine or like a diet or like a particular method of practicing any given skill, the first thing you always need to bring in mind is like, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, what is your goal? Because the thing that you do is going to change based on what your goal is. And with writing, I mean, especially with things like arguing on the internet or writing things on the internet that are supposed to be informational, it's very easy to forget. Whether you're spo- like whether you're even supposed to have a goal, right? I mean, other than the sort of ex- you know, expellent of your own energy, right? Like the sort of just driving of your own time into the ground through whatever like means are necessary, spinning your wheels. When you write something, like what are you trying to do? And uh, that I think is going to dictate, not dictate, but it's going to inform, and it should inform really what are needless words, what are needless pages, what are needless graphics, what can you afford to cut, and what what can you keep in, and what sort of luxuries can you afford yourselves, and what sort of incorrectnesses can you afford yourselves? Uh, I guess yourself is is another way of of putting it. Like, but of course, like all that said. We do feel this compulsion to be right. Right. And I, uh, and, I would like yeah. to – I mean let me jump in and, and be yeah. right for a second. I would like to, to correct uh, you know, something. And I'm not – I'm by far not the first person to uh, remark on this. But um, uh, let, let me, let me, Pete, let me um, give you a bit uh, – let me uh, perform for you a bit of oratory that uh, you know, is deeply sunk into our consciousness. Um, it, it goes like this. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's continuing mission. I'm sorry, I'm a child of the next generation. I, I know that I've been taken to task for you know, assuming <laughs> that Star Trek is the next generation. It's not uh, her five-year mission. It's its continuing mission just in my childhood. And that, we, all, we all wear our sins on our sleeves, and we, they're, they're there for all to see. You know, so It's continuing mission. <laughs> to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Uh, and I, I'd just like to point out that there is an egregiously split infinitive uh, in in that last that last statement, right? To right, boldly of go. To boldly go, as opposed to boldly to go, or to go boldly where no one uh, has gone before. And the injunction against splitting the infinitive comes from, you know, like most things, comes from Latin, where there were no split infinitives because the infinitive, the unconjugated uh, form of the verb, is a single word, right? Right. Um, Which I think, I mean, which is a good example, because if you are a big subscriber to ideas of diachronic language, the idea that the past usages of the language live on in the way that we use them now, whether we know it or not, 
it is recalling Greco-Roman epic in, in describing the voyages of the Enterprise. This sort of invocation is meant to conjure that kind of feeling about boat trips, right? Like, uh, and it sort of makes sense that it sounds kind of like a bad <laughs> translation of like the Odyssey or the Aeneid, right? Is because like that's what it's trying to be. Is it, you know this is like the Argo, you know? I'm not that's not in the Odyssey or the Aeneid, but you know what I mean? Like, sure. like it, it maybe. Certain specific kinds of mistakes can be conjured for specific reasons uh, to sort of roll back correction. Uh, I think it is one way is one way of putting it. Like, and the most common way of doing this is to, if you can make something sound more serious or scholarly or classical by stretching the words out or like convoluting the sentence structure uh, or like raising the level of oratory. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, it's egregiously split infinitive, and it really just should have said to go where people haven't been. Right. Of course, that's just really what it should have said. That, that would be that would be far more uh, far more correct. I was just trying to think of like how could you do a parody of the opening of the famous epics, right? Like, oh, oh, muse, sing to me of Picard, of that man of twists and turns, Picard, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, from right. France, you know, from from the vineyard. <laughs> Man, I got I got to bring this up now. Let's see if we can. Arma virumque cano troiae qui primus arboris. I know how it goes. Italian fato profugus lawinia que winet. All right, I got to bring up in the uh, bust this open. Right, absolutely. I mean, and and if if this if this sort of thing is um, really uh, really just jazzes you, I point you to Peter Fenzel's uh, article on overthinking it, which you can find with a little. Googling called um, the idea of order at Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. <laughs> that is the weirdest thing that I've ever written for this site. I think if you've ever read by like Wallace Stevens Andromeda, like sort of half parody, half like tribute. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? You want to take a minute to just talk about Wallace Stevens because he's kind of pertinent to our discussion. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's do that. You're going to have to. You're going to have to do the. I I, I confess. I, I beyond like the snowman. Um, I don't have the the Wallace Stevens gene, kind of like the John Ashbery gene. Uh, I, though they're very they're very different poets. They're very different genes that you have to have in order to like uh, either of those two poets. I, I don't have the Wallace Stevens uh, gene uh, in the way that that I think you you will, being you know, uh, being the better craftsman, as uh, you know. Elliot said of Ezra Pound. <laughs> Well, I mean, the thing—the thing about Wallace Stevens, right, is uh, Wallace Stevens is a bit like Herman Melville in that he's sort—he has pretty rigorous theoretical ideas of what he's trying to say, but he's not—he doesn't primarily get them across in writing theory, right? He just writes like very sort of dense stuff in the in the style that he writes, right? Uh, and, and Wallace Stevens' thing for me, and again, this isn't really—I've I've studied him somewhat formally, but a lot of this is just sort of semi-independent stuff too—is um, that he has this kind of like. It's it's sort of like we talk. Well, you talk about Joseph Campbell a lot and the hero's journey and all these different ideas of sort of describing the mythology of heroism. And Wallace Stevens has a whole sort of like pseudo. It's not even pseudo mystical. It's sort of like a way of rationalizing, uh, like sort of primordial mysticisms, uh, religions, uh, mythologies, uh, all, all sorts of different kinds of stories that don't really bear on reality, uh, reconciling them with like what, you know, the project of poetry, what poetry is trying to do and accomplish. And he really, so like, there's a, especially on the internet, you'll run into this argument a lot where on one side there'll be people who have some sort of notion of some sort of abstraction being at all relevant in human experience, and a whole lot of people going, no, no, right? Like, no, this is not possible. There's no abstraction. There's like science and logical positivism, and nothing else matters. Right, and uh, and while while the the big piece for Wallace Stevens uh, to sort of get a, a look into this is notes toward a supreme fiction, right? Where he he basically he makes this argument that uh, humanity uses fiction. Uh, toward a particular sort of project, which he associates with the sun. An idea of the sun is where it begins, right? And whatever this fiction is, there's a way of achieving the, the best kind of it in any given age, and necessarily changes, uh, right? And so, um, to, to, and this, he, doesn't, he can't tell you what the supreme fiction is, because as soon as he writes it down, 
it can only really exist in its moment. It's it's kind of a right, vital yeah, thing. It must be. I mean, there are three things, right? It must yeah. change. It must. Yep. Uh, it must be abstract. It must change. Uh, and let me. I've got it written down. And here also, the that, third one, which is the most important <laughs> of all. Yeah, I'm sure. It's like, and it must be in English. What? No, uh, it must be abstract. It must change. And give me just a second. I'm oh, almost there. Oh, muse, sing to me of Fenzel, <laughs> that man of many googlings. It must give pleasure. It must give pleasure, which is a huge one, which is something that people forget about a lot. Uh, and just a quick side note, um, you know, people talked a lot about the nudity in Game of Thrones, like whether it was good or bad from like a gender perspective and right. whether it was justifiable. And I always kind of shook my head at that. I didn't participate in those discussions, partly because I was busy when they were being written, but also just like, <laughs> is anybody even noting the fact that the, the people watching the show like derive pleasure from seeing the naked people? Yeah. And as such, like, that's par- basically the purpose of the show. Show, that's basically right? the like, purchase of uh, the purpose of HBO now, right? Like, is you know to to do this kind of like uh, to, to give as opposed to previously when it did something other than give pleasure as its primary goal. Well, <laughs> like, <laughs> I suppose, yeah. I mean, it must be abstract, you know. It yeah. must give pleasure and it must change. Um, I love it. it must change. It must be abstract and it must show reruns of Eric of Eric Roberts movies at like three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's a requirement. Um. <laughs> I mean, other people make this argument from the other side, and I'm thinking of Auden's poem now in memory of, of W.B. Yeats, right, where he says um, uh, uh, in the second sort of movement or the second, like, section of that poem, uh, he says, uh, for poetry makes nothing happen. Right. That, right. And that's the other, that's the sort of, I forget, it's not the converse, it's the, I, I forget the logical term for what, uh, what that is, right? Like, there's nothing but logical positivism, uh, positivism. Uh, the other, the other side, the people on the other side, the defenders of poetry who, um, who are defenders of poetry because of its useful, uselessness, right? Would claim that, like, poetry makes, makes nothing happen. And, you know, I, I heard it pointed out once that, like, Auden lived in a time when people, people wanted poetry to make certain kinds of things uh, happen, you know? Right. Um, that is to say, to, like, to stop the Spanish Civil War or something, or to, to you win it, right? And, in, in mm-hmm. fact, poetry doesn't, um, doesn't do this. And it, it might be more precise to say that poetry makes things happen, but never the things that you intend uh, or, you know... Um, or sort of set set out on. I mean, people might, um, you know, people might remember uh, from many, 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 many weeks ago uh, our interview with Richard Sandling, right? Um, when we talked about our, uh, uh, we talked about the kind of the creative impulse versus the um, uh, the what the critical or the critical academic impulse, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. We, yeah, we talked about yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, um, and in the context of that conversation, it was about it was about the academic. it was about Tom Selleck's mustache. Right. It was about like like you can figure out that Tom Selleck's mustache is funny and put it on a bunch of people, or you can be the critic who like is trying to figure out the specific significance of associating the masculine iconography of Tom Selleck with like the androgynous iconography of David Bowie. Right, right, and, like yeah, yeah. And when we right, and when we made that, I, I I thought it was being sort of insufferably pedantic, and thought that Rich might not might not like me because I was so insufferably pedantic uh, by pointing out that, like, it is, you know, uh, it is a sort of clash of discourses, um, you know, the likes of which Wagner would have envied, right? Like, the uh, in order to... Um uh, in order to put uh, Tom Selleck's mustache on David Bowie, but uh, but I digress, right? Like that that conversation was about uh, sort of academia, uh, about the critical impulse, sort of knowing its place, right? Uh, about uh, not not arrogating it to itself, the kind of primacy that that uh, you know works of creative art have. Right, 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 right. Um, that, and, and that we, we seem to be talking about we seem to be talking about a, a related but distinct um, uh, phenomenon here because of course both both people are wrong. The poetry makes makes nothing happen. People are wrong, and the there is you know <laughs> there is no truth but Zool. Uh, there is no uh, there is no kind of abstraction. Um, you know, and that's uh, you know the the my favorite growing up. I I had friends uh, who like in the full flower of seventeen years old would would uh, point out at some some abstract thing I was saying and like that's just a construct, 
you know the idea the idea being that certain things are socially determined you know um, that's just a construct you know what I mean there is no there is no real uh, good or evil or right or wrong or whatever we happen to be talking about probably our parents you know not letting us go out like you know there is no rules really that's just a construct uh, right, which right. my answer at the time was uh, well yes of course a house though is just a construct and I do like to mm-hmm. live in one as opposed to the uh, you know as opposed to the alternative right um, of course these things exist and of course they have uh, an effect on us and we need we need a, a, a sort of poetics right because uh, as in addition to like a science and a philosophy we need a poetics because um, these things kind of uh, uh, these things affect our thinking about ourselves and uh, uh, you know how we uh, how we conceive of ourselves and how we conceive of the range of options that we have at any given time. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, I don't know, for me, and, and, and I'm still thinking about this in terms of the idea of order in Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, which I like, I'm, I wrote that in 2009, probably at like three in the morning. But just thinking, thinking about like what motivated me to write it is that like, there's, I think there's a way in which poetical work and artistic work brings there is a bringing into being that happens when it happens right which which i think is an ongoing process that you do to everything right so you're saying like a house is a construct but a house is a construct in two ways right right like a house is a construct in the sense that you build it out of wood and then a house is also a construct because you 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 use your senses to perceive this object and then determine that you were supposed to position yourself within it in a certain way and behave with regards to it in a certain way sure. and like the house comes into being right in the well, same- I mean, and the like a house is also a construct in, in the sense that like a house has has a relationship to houseness or to right. i mean to something like not to not to break it down too far but to to something like the former idea of the house right and right, that, right. like um you know uh, uh that you know that that houseness uh thing is is structural which is to say arbitrary it could be quite other uh than the way the way it is and yet like at a certain point we have to stop arguing about uh you know what houseness is and we have to make dinner right yeah, well, sure, sure. We have to go about our lives, and and I think and I, there's only so much time. I think that's another thing is that art does exist in time. Semantic arguments exist in time. They're all ways of they don't you don't sort of suspend your experience of the world to have these arguments. And I think that's one of the most important when we're talking about what compels us. I'm going to try to sort of keep coming back to our kind of tone for the episode, right? Which is like, you know, what compels us? What, what about being right? What is it about being right? What is it about being wrong? What is it about this sort of pedantic impulse? Um, one of the things that sort of compels us forward while we do it is the relationship between our experience of our lives and this thing that we're doing in time, right? Like you, you're not really stepping outside of your life and having an argument with somebody about you know, freaking community, right? And Dan Harmon leaving community, which at this point must have happened ages ago. Right. Uh, but, uh, like, you're not stepping outside. Like, your processing of that argument is part of your in- incorporation of that idea into your life, right? And-, and moving forward with it. Just as maybe you're making dinner that night has a relationship with that idea. Like, you know, you know, Dan Harmon leaves community, all of a sudden maybe part of your ravioli that night is about Dan Harmon because that's something that's been on your mind and the way that you bring the idea of the ravioli into being necessitates some sort of constructed similarity or association with Dan Harmon. Except you don't, right? you like, don't eat ravioli anymore, Pete, because we're all paleo now. Right. By the time this podcast is aired, we will all be on the paleo diet. <laughs> right. No, that's referring to the fact that he and I specifically are on the paleo diet, right. which is awesome. Matt is, Matt is like a level five, like uh, he, he's, he's paid for the clean services for like the de-electrification or what have you. <laughs> I'm only intro, but yeah, but we've been working on that. It's, it's, you know what? It's, it's a fun diet. that's called eating vegetables. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh it's nice. Yeah, absolutely. Eat some yeah, eat some vegetables. It's it's good for you. I want to I mean, I was think when we were sort of pre-gaming about this this show, uh, Pete, we were talking about one specific uh one specific construct, thing that's that's just a construct. Um that that should be able to kind of refute all the logical positivists because like it, it is something that that just moves people, you know what I mean? That that affects people's yeah. lives, that makes them, um, uh, that makes them happy or sad or furious or or whatever. And that is the the construct of of good grammar, right? Uh, right. And I, you know, I periodically on overthinking it, I write these series of of grammar Thursday posts. Uh, 
which are all in good fun, you know, which are, are sort of about like my fascination with, with usage and, you know, trying to, um, trying to like, uh, uh, use language in a way that is, uh, that is intentional, that is very conscious, um, as opposed to just, you know, just out of habit, uh, especially when you write you know, for people to, to read, to put out there publicly and, and, uh, for people to read and, you know, um, but rather than take these things in the spirit of fun in which they're, uh, intended, I, um, I, I found that like in some of the comments, I'm, I'm sort of dissuaded from doing these sometimes because I, I, I know, I know you always say, Pete, if they're not yelling at you on the internet, you're doing it wrong. But, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm like the one bad cop on the overthinking it, like writer's list where I'm like, you know, Blasky, like I'm going on the, get, give me your badge and your gun. He's like, I've got to fight the case now i'm the one who's always saying like we should encourage flame wars so that we like get more people to come to the site which and is I'm i know like, a stupid yeah, thing I'm to like, do i'm but. like I, and i'm like you know extreme moderation of our of our comments and forums because like one of the things that's amazing to me is how civil our community is and how yeah. much interesting discussion takes place with with a level of civility unheard of on you know the 4chans or even the reddits or even the meta filters the meta filters i love how you're saying like even and then you're following it like the worst place places <laughs> it's like okay, i should say i should say with with 4chan or reddit or even meta filter which it's like even angel falls in south Af- south america is beautiful like even <laughs> fiji is a beautiful place yeah. you know, uh, like- at, at in arcadia ego uh- <laughs> lego my at arcadia ego okay <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so uh, people people get so exercised to this uh, at, at these grammar posts. Like, like there was one recently where I I was talking about the difference b- uh, between senses of effect, <laughs> um, effect and affect, and uh, you know the, there's a noun and a verb for each one, and sometimes uh, they have different uh, the noun or the verb of each one has different senses. And I I tried to write a sentence that had all of them in it, and it wasn't perfect, but it, you know it was a game. Uh, sort of attempt at uh, at it, and and um, I got a lot of uh, you know uh, you know well actually you know what what a terrible sentence you have written R- rather than kind of taking these things in the spirit of fun uh, that the, really that the whole site overthinking it is intended in and I you know I sort of wondered about that and what is it about that aspect of correctness you know of grammatical correctness specifically. Um, that gets uh, that uh, that gets people's hackles up, and and I think it's a couple of things. One is that when you write an article about grammar, you immediately engage this sense of like, what you think you're better than me, you right? Know? Like, uh, le- you you immediately and, are, and you and you do, which is why you write them, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, I sorry, don't know. sorry, I didn't want to dagger you like that. <laughs> no, you clearly don't. You're a very humble man. You were in Hook, though. <laughs> I just keep bringing that up. It was an in-hook. My voice, my voice is on the soundtrack of, of, uh, of Hook. Look, the- if I were to make some sort of dotted line around the notion of Hook, <laughs> you would be on the inside of that dotted line. I suppose. Um, the, yeah, right. I, so it, right, because when you, when you start writing about grammar, you, uh, you sort of engage this idea that, that you're correcting people, that you're right and they're wrong, or you're better than them, or you do something better than them. You know what I mean? You're superior or have a superior skill. Um, uh, to them, rather than uh, you know what I mean, and it's some—it's almost something that you can't help, right? We—it's—it's it's almost impossible to write about grammar in a way that is non-polemical, um, right? Or or that doesn't engage that doesn't engage a kind of discourse of rightness and wrongness, whether or not you want to uh, uh, engage that discourse, right? I mean, if you were to avoid it, you're you're not avoiding the subject. You're just like openly seating the authority, right? right? Like you can write a very self-effacing article about how you don't really know anything and then you can write about grammar, but all you're really doing is, is playing like, like, just, like if, if there's a king and there's a serf, play, you know, playing the serf doesn't negate the existence of the king, right? Like it just, it strengthens it. It's like if, if I show up at a castle and the first person that I meet is like a groveling beggar, yeah. um, this does not lead me to think that the groveling beggars are in charge of the castle, <laughs> right? Like it leads me to that this, I've just met one half of the relationship. Yeah, you can't get out, you can't get out of the castle, you know what I mean? Yeah. Grammar, grammar is a castle, I guess, is the, yeah. is, is the thing. But then, you know, I was trying to, I was, I was thinking more, more about this, and it's not just about me being an asshole, right? Like, or, or someone thinking that, okay, that you're, I, you're not an asshole, 
you you might not necessarily be the most humble man I've ever met, but you're not an asshole. You're very nice. You're a very generous person, both with your time and energy, and uh, you have a big heart, and we all love you. Right, so or, or, or well, I mean, you know, you can be an asshole and also be other things, too. You can be an asshole sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah, sure, like, sure, sure. Everybody has to be an asshole sometimes. Right. Are, are, asshole is an okay word for our chili pepper purposes, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Okay. Um, you know, you can say bullshit on, uh, you know, on Comedy Central at 11 o'clock. Fair enough. I, th- I think. But yep. not at 10 a.m. I don't know. But the yep. – uh, uh, no, we're still PG-13, right? So the, the – um, it's not just that someone, someone thinks I'm being a jerk by, uh, uh, you know, saying I'm better than them. Whether or not I, I, I intend to say I'm, I'm better than them, um, you know uh, – but it's it's more than that. It's it's also right that that um, I think that when you start talking about grammar, you engage people's kind of fundamental sense of order in you know in the universe, right? And the like the Webster's third, uh, you know, putting irregardless in in the. Um, in the dictionary, because uh, you know, uh, you know, the argument of the descriptivists, right, is that you know, a dictionary is a record of use, not necessarily a uh, you know, a prescription for correctness. Um, that it should be that kind of document. It shouldn't be an aspirational document. It should be a, a sort of uh, a documentary document, right? Um, uh, you know that that if you really which which seems like wishful thinking to me sure like yeah no one will use us as an authority we'll just be like uatu the watcher and i won't get involved except that i always get involved <laughs> freaking uatu the watcher is the worst at his job he must get so many reprimands from watcher central they're all like stop talking to spider-man you're just embarrassing yourself you have no idea what i'm talking about do you matt no i really don't all right well you know what everybody can let if you the person who writes the best explanation of who Uatu the Watcher is to Matt. We'll get a special uh, emoticon thumbs up from me in the comment thread to this podcast. <laughs> um, oh God. I've seen some of your emoticons. I, 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 <laughs> I shudder to think what, right. uh, what it could be. Um, the, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I think, uh, right, like, this, this is a very scary thing if you actually take this seriously and kind of go down that rabbit hole of, of sort of being thrown back on your own, on your own devices with with no authority because because one thing about authority is that it's it's comforting you know what i mean it can chafe uh from time to time but it's it's uh comforting right yeah. like uh, uh, to a certain extent any sort of restriction can be um can be a comfort uh because you know your place in that universe right 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 right, right. and this actually this is- has has a lot to do with wallace stevens and ezra pound and and you know poetry after the first world war and the second world war and uh you know the sense of kind of the alienation and dislocation and and um not really knowing our place in the universe uh, yeah yeah uh, i mean uh, yeah definitely and and i think uh, an important way to look at it right is that um well, I guess one one of the one of the big the, one of the big sort of lessons of modernity and of the twentieth century that I feel like it, it can be crystallized right is like there's no one driving the boat right sure. like like they, there's the there's this idea of a boat. And there's an idea of everybody being on the boat. Right. And at, at a certain point, there's an idea that somebody's driving the boat. And then it's like, okay, we sure, have different whether it's, I mean, whether it's God or the, the queen or, yeah. you know, um, what have you. It doesn't even really matter who it is specifically. Or like because the, the, on a, the yeah. consent of the governed or, you know, right, yeah. you know what I mean? Like all these, all these things are kind of uh, our stand-ins for like the, the pilot of the boat. Okay. Right, and, 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 he, and then you transition into a way of thinking about things in which nobody's driving the boat. And all those things still exist, right? Like, you can still talk about things like God and the Queen and, like, the National Academy of, of the French Language or whatever they call it, right, which decides the rules of France, uh, French. All the rules of Fran- France, by the way, it's a horrible conspiracy. Right. No, they, they, the people who set down the official rules for the French language, which English doesn't really have, right? Like, um, all these institutions and individuals and symbols and authority figures, all these things can still exist in this framework, but there's still this sort of compelling cultural idea that nobody is driving the boat. Sure. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that one of the things to draw, one way to look at this or one thing to draw from this is that it never, it was never really the agency of whatever it was that was driving the boat that was 
creating and sustaining the idea of the boat being driven by something huh. right like like even if you think the queen is driving the boat right. it isn't the queen that is making you think that the queen is driving the boat sure. it's your relationship with one another and your discussions with one another that that create and sustain the idea of the queen driving the boat and then that becomes the reality right. this, i mean this start. reminds me of the the conversation between um varies and littlefinger or, yeah. no, sorry varies and Tyrion, but uh, yeah. like uh, early in the second season of of uh, Game of Thrones on HBO, not the, not the uh, because I, I'm not sure that this conversation happens in the book. At least I don't recall it off the top of my head. I, I, I think it, I think it, I think it does, but I think it happens. Uh, it might happen between different people. I'm not sure. Huh. But, uh, the, but yeah, the, the 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 idea that like power exists in the minds of the people who are who are controlled. You know what I mean? And that it's uh, that it's the person who who can take advantage of that situation who ends up. Um, seeming to exercise, uh, is, uh, seeming to exercise power. This also, right. if you watch Gossip Girl and you sort of understand, um, you understand uh, uh, Sheely and my arguments about sort of uh, discourse versus agency, or sort of structure, structural power, discursive power versus uh, individual agency, and you understood the, the the phenomenon of of Chuck Bass, you know, who is who is the sort of um, uh, Tyrion of uh, of Gossip Girl, except not uh, except very good looking, uh, extremely tall, and uh, gets more trim than a barber shop. Um, <laughs> The you know uh, y- you'd uh, you'd see that really Gossip Girl is one of the most profound sociological documents that uh, the, the 21st century has produced. Yeah. Oh, by the way, it is it is the same. It is also between Varys and Tyrion in A Clash of Kings. I think they just bump it up a little bit in the story. Okay, it happened a little bit earlier. Um, so yeah. So and I, I would also. Um, I'd, I'd also point out that so my per, so my personal idea this this is this is the way that I've kind of thought of it for a long time right is you know I was raised in a in, in a in a notion of within a notion of history and religion and morality and all these other things in which there very much was somebody who was driving the boat right like this is sort of like the framework in which in which I was raised and then there were certain sort of qualities of this boat driving that was taking place, which to which I became like very loyal and adhered, right? And it's like th- there are certain things about this way of thinking about the universe or this way of thinking about the world or this way of thinking about other people that I feel like are good and important, right? And the ways of thinking about history. Um, and, and I wasn't indoctrinated to such a degree that I felt like, you know, broadening, broadening my understanding of things to sort of like re-examine causalities, Right and be like, well, you know, maybe the you know the representative democracy doesn't quite work as well as I was ta- taught that it might work when I was younger. In practice, there were certain mathematical problems with it. You know, there's like the Condorcet paradox and like the idea that like it's very difficult if you can only choose between two things to can really have meaningful de- de- control. But I was still raised with this really strong belief, and, and this is like almost like a Kierkegaardian way of looking at it, right? Which is that like. You know, this idea is brought into being as we live it. You know, every day you get up in the morning, and this is the thing that is true for you, or the thing that you really love. And if, if overthinking it is nothing else, that, that's what I've always thought of it as: is like we're we're dealing with stuff that we love, that right. maybe we're uncomfortable about loving. Maybe we feel like we need to explain it. Maybe we feel like we don't want to have to explain it. But like love is the primary driver here, and I think you've used a different word for it too. Um, but and when confronted with ideas of sort of post-structuralist, post-modernism, all these sort of like attacks on the boat driver, mm-hmm. um, the, the idea that uh, – the word that always has come to mind for me for years is the idea of stewardship, right? And this idea that if there is an idea about um, a legacy or about a language or about anything else that is sort of subject to changes in discourse over time and you love it, then you know you can – dedicate some portion of your energy to being a steward of that idea mm-hmm. and protecting that idea and, de- and defending that idea in the discourse. And, and a good example of this uh, would be dictionary definitions, right? right? Um, so, so for example, I think the big argument for why you don't put irregardless in the dictionary is that the rules of correctness uh, as they are precisely applied right, um, serve to make the language more rich and complex. Um, you know, there are many, many small variations 
definitions in English that no one person can ever really be expected to know. Sure. Um, and that, and, I mean, and that yeah. has to do – I mean, talk about a diachronic view of language. That has to do with the way English – came about. I mean, English is like the Borg, you know, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated, right? Right, right? There is no influence. There is no language from French to, you know, Latin a, a second time to, uh, you know, Japanese or whatever, like, you know, uh, that English will not sort of in its great capaciousness, um, uh, you know, enfold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is this is funny because it's both a, a, an advantage of English and also part of its brokenness as a language and why it is so hard to learn, right? Yeah. Is because it's assimilated all these rules and carryovers from all these other languages. Yeah, and when are you using, I mean, when are you using German rules for things and when are you using yeah. Latin rules for things? And, yeah. Right? And the fact that there are two, I mean, there are two sort of distinct, actually there are more than two, but there are two main sort of distinct like verb systems in English. You know what I mean? Ways of making... Uh, uh, past tense, past tense verbs, right? Like the 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 difference between take and took, and um, you know, kick and kicked, right? right? Like that that'll just drive you crazy if you're trying to learn the damn language. Oh, definitely, definitely. Which is a great name for it, by the way. If you can come up with a, if you want to write a book like the damn language, <laughs> the damn language. <laughs> um, but but like you know, just this this idea that English is really really complex. It's difficult for anybody to speak it. A lot of people see this as kind of a power thing, and it is. It's always a power thing, but a power thing where people who are less educated are subjugated by the people who are more educated because the more educated people can say what's right or wrong, and the less educated people don't get to, which is legitimate and a concern, right? But there's also this idea that like, well, these rules are being upheld because of this misplaced belief in the boat driver, right? And this like, there's, you know, the the queen is not going to come down and tell us that we're speaking English wrong. There's no huge authority telling us that we have to do it. And it's not the way that anybody actually speaks it. So why should we care, right? And the, and the, 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 one of the answers that comes back is like, well, if you go by the way everybody speaks it and nobody speaks it with the sort of full precision and richness of the language, then you, you every time you sort of make an, uh, a compromise, you're cutting some part of that texture away, right? You're stripping some cool little nook or cranny or other like facility for meaning or facet, some sort of legacy that someone came up with at some point. You're just dull. You're just shaving off that edge. Uh, you're making the language less beautiful. Sure. Um, right. And it's like, well, who, well, who cares? Right is is the comeback, and, and then when it comes to the stewardship stuff, really what it comes down to is I care, right? right. Like I like I, I care that the language is made less beautiful by the way in which the 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 sort of imprecisions become precisions, the way that the sort of like uh, the sort of not oft trafficked corridors of the language are bulldozed, right? Because if they're not being used, they must not matter. Right, um, the, the, and this idea that the the record books. Are you talking, I mean, are you talking about the subjunctive mood, or are you talking about the distinction between who and whom, or why? I mean, you know. Oh, I mean, I, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm. I I mean, I suppose I think that it should still be there. So I'm also. So I'm just. I'm talking about. I guess who and whom is a good example, right? Like uh, the idea that the length that we should only have one. You know. What is it? I guess what is the grammatical term for what who is a personal a personal pronoun. Right, like a, a personal interrogative yeah, pronoun, a, like a, a, rel- a relative pronoun. Usually, is it a, it's a relative it's pronoun? Usually, in a subordinate clause, right? Gotcha, gotcha. So it's like a, so it's a, it's a relative pronoun. It's non-gendered, and it shouldn't be declined. We should only have one of them because nobody can remember the objective form, and nobody uses it, yeah, right? And I, so you know, so that there should be no difference really between you know the man whom I was kicking, you know, screamed horribly, and uh, the man who I was kicking screamed horribly, right? Right. And the, the important thing to take away from that is that you are a bad mamajama who kicks people so they scream <laughs> until they scream right so i mean i understand that people don't use it like i understand that's not a big deal and i understand that it's kind of a, being kind of a dick to correct people sure but by, by saying you're not saying who or whom correctly right. but i don't understand getting rid of that whole thing altogether um, right, yeah i don't understand saying it doesn't matter i, I mean like yeah. saying right like not correcting somebody is a matter of etiquette right is a matter of not being a jerk and i yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm i'm with you on 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 that, like, unless you, your job is to be an editor for that person, you know what I mean? And, like, one of the agreements, one of the kind of contracts of your editorship, of whatever you're editing for them, is that you, um, you, you know, y- your audience is going to care about that distinction and you're enforcing it. Um, but, uh, uh, to, to say, to say, even though, like, even though that w- we don't use it or we don't observe it here, that it doesn't, you know, that it doesn't matter, right? Like, right. is, I, that's to make a leap, uh, I think that is unwarranted. Warranted, um, 
uh, unwarranted by the facts and evidence, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think for me, this ties back into what we've been talking about with the Wallace Stevens stuff and even the, in the Andromeda stuff, which is that like the the way that we're thinking about and experiencing the world is constantly coming into being anew, right? In new ways, uh, there, there's it's changing. There are new abstractions, you know, and that's the experience of living. You know, like Dan Harmon is in the ravioli, right? Like it's all part and parcel of the same stuff. And if you just sort of um, maybe the ravioli is made with coconut flour or something like that, you know, <laughs> maybe it's made with like meta textualism and so and like. <laughs> Maybe, maybe yeah, maybe it's like eight bit ravioli that was made in a special episode that no new viewers understood. Uh, it is you know food is community communion and all that right community, uh, <laughs> but like but like you know you're bringing you're the the way that you feel compelled to or feel the love to or feel the 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 sort of impetus to bring your world into being like as you live you know that is that is as close to a, a morality as as i think you can get i mean it's such, it's very close to your idea of yourself and and also all of these ideas of constructions of self and morality are and, and even like utilitarian things like what a house is and what a tree is like these all matter to you in in a similar way as you bring your experience into being on a day-to-day basis. And I think um, that we are doing this in a very crowded world where we're all next to each other and we're social animals. And so we respond to the way that other people are doing it. So one of my ideas about why people get into these arguments, right, is that you're on the internet kind of as like, or it's internet is kind of like a a running commentary that a lot of people are making on their lives as they are living it while they are kind of figuring it out on the fly, sure. right? It's, it's almost like you're on a CB radio while you're driving the truck, but like the CB radio is also kind of controlling the truck or dictating where you go, uh-huh. right? Like you're sort of, it's like a creative act. Um, <laughs> and just to be clear, if your CB radio is telling you where to go, pull over. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's almost like we're making a sort of, we're creating a distance between ourselves uh, between like um, we're creating a distance between our narrativization, our bringing into being of the world, um, and our physical bodies by locating it in intermittent arguments rather than like within our heads where it is often taking place or the speech between other people, which seems more intimate and personal. So it matters when somebody says you're wrong because they're making a social play for your your fiction space. Right, like they're they're saying, like, no, I have the power and authority to dictate the way that you're bringing this into the world, and you, my ability to exert social influence on you, should force you away from this idea that you've held to yourself. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that that grammar, I think, just because. Social change influences grammar so much, and grammar is this commonly held system of authority that affects us so much. And also because it's taught to us as children, right, as like a way of being right or wrong, even more than, than religion is these days, right? Like every, every kid learns grammar, right? Um, yeah. Well, right, and it's it, – I, I mean, and I think it's the fact that you sort of learn it when, when it's a kid that, that it's one of the reasons that it's so associated with that, that kind of thing because, like, when you're a kid, there's a, there's a teacher. I went to, My freshman year of high school, I wanted to write uh, about a poem that I had written on in high school, and I happened to mention this to, to my professor that I had done some work on this poem before. And, and she was wary of letting me – of, like, approving the paper topic because she said, you know, the things you learn in high school have such – authority in your mind you know uh uh, whether whether or not you know subsequent investigation re- reveals them to be true, I mean whether or not you want to hold these things, uh, hold on to them later. Th- those things y- you learn then have just uh, exercise such authority, and I think that's true also of. Um, of grammar because of uh, you know because of the time of life right that right. We sort of first we sort of first become aware of it yeah now when we were first doing some of the background for this podcast we talked about the possibility of discussing um, popular movie quotes and sort of like the usage and etymology and diachronic language that's present in particular movie quotes now we don't necessarily have to get into this discussion but there was one that I'd prepared to talk about for this podcast that I think is very pertinent to talk about right now okay um, and that is uh, Indiana Jones Jones, mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, when Indiana, Indiana Jones, of course, by certain narrativizations, is an imperialist. He's he's a cultural pater- he's a paternalistic cultural figure who's looking to sort of co-opt the cultural and and the cultural legacy and historical wealth of the developing world for the aggrandizement of his like you know museum. Leviathan museum. Yeah, museum is the word I want to talk about. Because what does what does Indiana Jones say when he comes across a relic that somebody wants for sort of power, right, or for some sinister purpose? He always says it belongs in a museum, right? 
Right. Yeah, which is definitely, I mean, that's definitely an argument about about the use of power because it wasn't made nothing was made for a museum things were made to be used paintings were made to be looked at to be hung on uh, hung in homes you know what i mean right but let me let me let me posit that this is also somewhat of a metatextual statement about iconography and about sort of sacred objects and about a lot of what we've just been talking about about being about people bringing their ideas of things into the world the way that people being bring things into the world being sort of sacred to them uh, and and that being as much of a motivator for what people think is right or what they people think is wrong as sort of prescribed uh, rubrics for behavior so diachronically a museum right is a shrine to the muses sure right and it's a it's a museum is a place where you would you would go to get inspired right like a museum is a sort of seat of inspiration right of this sort of generative imaginative play whether you want to talk about imagination or fancy or any of the other ideas of 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 mentally creating an idea either out of nothing or out of strings of previous ideas so maybe when he's saying it belongs in a museum what Ian Jones is saying and I do think that this bears out in the mythology of it a little bit if you want to consider it this way is that like this is an object the purpose of which should be to inspire people to inspire amazement to inspire story to inspire like a sort of bringing into the uh, in bringing into the world of this you know abstract notion of either of heroism or glory or greatness um you know the ark of the covenant belonging in a museum rather than in front of an army means that it should be an idea that people interact with in a in a, in a sort of you know personally generative way that inspires them right uh-huh. like this should be something that inspires you. And, and that, if, if nothing else, that's sort of Indiana Jones's endearing quality is that he's like consistently has this sense of like inspiration and energy, right? And this sort of like, he's not just getting these things to catalog them. He's also, we watch Indiana Jones enjoy the hell out of his adventures, right? As he, as he like sort of feels all the feelings and senses all of the, I mean, you know, he even eats the monkey brains. He's in the heat of the Temple of Doom. Like, like all of these things are enriching his life. And we're, our lives are enriched by experiencing Indiana Jones's life. And as such, the relics that Indiana Jones wants to put in the museum, he wants to put there to inspire us too, to have that soaring music behind us in our lives. And, and then this ties back to the solo wall Stevens thing of us as people seeking out this kind of way of bringing our own lives into, uh, bringing our own, you know, abstract, changing, pleasure-giving notions, mythologies, stories, poems, everything into the world as we live. Right, and that, that this is the thing when you're getting into an argument about Yu-Gi-Oh. This uh-huh. is the thing. This is the thing that you're arguing about. Like you're 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 arguing about this thing that inspires you um, for whatever reason that it inspires you. Right, and, and you want to be right because being right or wrong is a way that people exert social energy over other people's imaginations of the world. And grammar is, of course, a common rubric that we all lay over it so that we could all communicate and, uh, and associate with each other uh, within this framework of, of, of us all coming up with sentences, all coming up with language. Um, so anyway, that, that was how I wanted to tie this all back and, and hit all these different topics. Um, some of these times when I really feel uh, strongly about the subject of the podcast, I know I tend to veer us off in particularly different directions, but um, I, th- I think it matters. I think, I think that that's also why people who get in arguments about things like politics, the arguments that really provoke people – People don't. Re- people never really get in arguments about specific matters of tax policy, for example, right? Like, like not really. Not, not the argu- way that. I mean, yeah, not arguments in the sense that I think you mean. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, like the arguments in which people are yelling at each other on the internet and coming up all with sources and, argu- exactly. and like, yeah. and like they might be thinking that they're arguing about tax policy, but what they're really arguing about most of the time is like the bringing into the world of the idea and feeling an inspiration associated with their idea of order that is surrounded by a particular mythology of tax policy, sure. right? Like, and, and of course, like we all love to say that this thing is fully supported by evidence, but generally that is, you know, there may be evidence that is there, but that is not necessarily what is driving you to say the things that you are saying yeah um so anyway so then that's my that's my florid speech on the subject about rightness and wrongness um and i guess what it goes back to when we talk about the men without hats the big problem with my big revision of it is it doesn't want you want to dance right and that's the purpose of the song and that's what's supposed to inspire if your friends don't dance 
but they're uh, no friends of mine. <laughs> they, they ain't no friends of mine. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, you're all friends. Uh, you're all friends of ours, and we hope we have inspired you to dance uh, a little bit. Um, if you have anything that you'd like to say to us about about this topic, about uh, Yu-Gi-Oh, about grammar, about uh, Webster's Third, and the- Webster's Third, you've activated my trap card. <laughs> Behold, Eye of Infinity. Anyway, continue, continue. Uh, Anyone who can explain that to Matt in in the notes gets the other thumbs up and the emoticon. I I had a, yeah, I have a totally, like, my cartoons, I had, like, totally girl cartoons when I was little. Like, I watched, like, Gem and the Holograms a lot, you know? So I can talk to you about, like, synergy and, like, the misfits, the, the, like, the hologram slash misfits dialectic. Uh, I can talk your (laughs) ear off about those things, but um, uh, not really about Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon or Dragon Ball or, you know, anything else that that was cool. Or even things that were cool at the time, like uh, He-Man or um, Sky Commanders or... uh, you know, <laughs> you have a really interesting idea of what cool is. <laughs> it's like totally like everything that everybody else who li- everybody who talks to me who says they like things must like things cooler than the things that I liked. And it's like no, uh, not necessarily. Yu-Gi-Oh isn't that cool. <laughs> anyway, continue. Uh, uh, you're you're exceptionally gracious to uh, to say so. Um, so uh, if you would like to uh, uh, jump into this uh, conversation, into this discourse, drink, uh, you can email us at podcastoverthinking.com. You can call or text 203-285-6401. Or, uh, you know, what I hope you'll do is join in the comments on the show notes and uh, the great discussions that get going on there. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Overthinking It podcast. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com. The site that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably does, does not deserve. deserve. <laughs> we shouldn't take the probably out. We shouldn't speak so uncertainly if we're making an expository case for our mission statement. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> and what is what's up with the it? Um, we was I, robbed. <laughs> we was robbed indeed.